Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, my guest today is Anthony Pompliano, who goes by Pomp. Uh, he's actually a really, really well-known figure in the kind of crypto space. And so I think a lot of listeners here are already familiar with him. But Pomp, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, so you've got, just so everyone knows, obviously this great Substack newsletter, a great podcast, which I've been lucky enough to, to be a guest on. Um, and then you actually invest your own money uh, in the things that you believe in, which is which is a rare thing sometimes these days. Let's jump right in, shall we? Let's do it. Cool. So what was the first time you ever heard of crypto? I heard about Bitcoin in 2014. I was working at Facebook. Uh, David Marcus actually had been the president of PayPal. He came over and he and a bunch of other folks were talking about it for cross-border payments, remittances. And I did nothing other than turn to an engineer and I said, is that real? And he said, it's stupid. And then I moved on with my day and didn't come back to it until 2016, which uh, made me the one that was actually stupid, not uh, not, not Bitcoin. So so what, what changed in 2014 and 2016? In 2016, um, a young kid uh, pitched me on the idea of uh, mining, uh, specifically around uh, Ether on um, the Ethereum blockchain. And uh, my family has been in the uh, data center business for a long time. And so I immediately just recognized, hey, this is basically a better data center. Uh, the unit economics are better. There's persistent demand for the computing power. Um, and you don't have to go into these kind of very high-end, expensive uh, tier three data centers. Mm -hmm. And so that was actually my first foray was uh, I bought some mining equipment and started mining first. And, and was your view that there was just much, as long as people wanted to mine, whether Bitcoin went up and down or anything else, there was opportunity or, or what, what point did you become a true believer in, in the underlying notion itself? Yeah, I think that uh, history kind of gets uh, um, whitewashed a little bit, like the, you know, the victors get to rewrite history a lot. And so everyone likes to think that they came for some non-economic reason. Uh, but I think majority of people were like me. I came because I thought I was going to get rich. Right. It was like, oh, I'm going to invest some capital and I'm going to make a bunch of money um, because of that. Uh, it was a good investment decision. Right. It's kind of the, the more proper way to say it, if you will. And what ends up happening when you go down that path, uh, a friend of mine, Marty Benoit, says uh, people come for the riches, but they stay for the sound money. Right. They, they kind of you, you come because you think you're going to get rich. You come for the money, but then you end up staying because you actually get a crash course in everything from economics, monetary policy, personal finance, et cetera. And then you start to realize, like, actually, the, the money, the, the profits of this uh, pale in comparison to the importance of it uh, to the world. And, and you kind of go from a pure investor to somebody who wants to see this be successful because of the impact on the world. OK, so someone listening to this is a crypto skeptic. And they're saying there's no impact on the world other than a bunch of people either just making money off of an investing craze or using the dark web to get away with things illegally. What's the answer? Yeah, there's there's a couple of different components to the uh, conversation. So first, let's take the illegal activities, the easiest one. Um, Bitcoin specifically is uh, transacted on a public blockchain. And that means that you can see every transaction that occurs. Really bad idea for criminals to basically write down in an immutable ledger every single transaction they do. And so when you actually look at the data, everyone from the former CIA director all the way to a number of these on-chain uh, kind of analyst firms estimate that less than 0.5% of all transactions are done for illicit purposes. Yep. Again, the choice currency of criminals, terrorists, money launderers, et cetera, around the world is U.S. dollars, right? And, and so uh, there's about $2 trillion laundered through the fiat system per year, uh, based on estimates, uh, which is bigger than the entire Bitcoin ecosystem by a factor of two. Um, and, and so just 
very, very different markets, I think. Uh, when you think of uh, the impact on the world, I always just approach um, from a first principle standpoint, what is probably, again, this is debatable, what is probably the biggest problem in the world today? Uh, it's actually the wealth inequality gap, right? It's this idea that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And most people like to point at uh, a million different reasons why that occurs. My personal perspective is there's two key components. What drives the wealth inequality gap is the devaluation of currencies, uh, ultimately because about 50% of the richest people in the world, they own assets. Uh, and so when the fiat currency is devalued, they actually get richer. The, the price of their assets go up, and so they continue to accrue more value. The bottom 45 to 50% of Americans hold no investable assets. And so they continue to have their currency devalued both from what they get paid. Uh, so if you're getting paid minimum wage uh, over a decade, you're actually getting paid less 10 years in than you were when you first started because the purchasing power is eroded. But also too, is if 100% of your wealth is in cash, it's just slowly melting away from purchasing power terms. And so if you think of that as the main driver, the second thing then is education, right? If you live in that system, if you're educated, you understand get into assets, don't hold cash, and you'll actually benefit from the system rather than uh, suffer from it. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what Bitcoin does is it ushers in a system where nobody, no politician, no government, no individual, no financial institution, uh, no bad actor, good actor, nobody can create more of it. And so when you get into a system where nobody has control, uh, what it allows for is uh, the ultimate representation of what a central bank is uh, widely agreed to be. In order for a central bank to be effective, you need them to be independent and you need them to be predictable or reliable. Yep. And so there's nothing more independent than a decentralized one that no one right. controls. And then there's nothing more certain or predictable than a programmatic monetary policy. And so I just ultimately think that like, you know, when folks ask me, why am I so passionate about this? It's just, that is what we're going for is you can make a serious, serious first principles based dent in the wealth inequality gap by simply allowing for folks to uh, use and save in a global store of value that appreciates a purchasing power rather than depreciates over a long period of time. And, and do you think that that's more pronounced for people living in, in countries whose currency is really volatile, or do you think it's the same thing kind of everywhere? Yeah, I don't think there's a country in the world where their currency isn't volatile. I mean, if you look at the U.S. dollar, 38% of dollars in circulation today have been created in the last 18 months. Right. So we don't we don't think of it as the U.S. dollar is volatile. But if you were to, you know, let's say denominate dollars in Bitcoin, the dollar has been crashing against Bitcoin for a decade, and you would, you know, sell it today and immediately leave if you looked at the chart. Now. Obviously, the dollar is much more stable than you know the the classic examples of Venezuela, Zimbabwe, you know uh, Turkey. We're, we're, we go around kind of the, the world, and you can pick up whatever example you want. Um, and so, I think that ultimately, what we have to remember is um, there are two different economies that exist today. One is what I'll call the physical economy. These are traditional economies that are driven by geographic barriers. So if I live in the United States, there's the American economy. That American economy has the U.S. dollar as its native reserve currency, uh, and we all conduct commerce and price assets in dollars. But what we're starting to enter into is this digital economy, the second economy, which is not tied to physical borders. And so if I can send information across the internet to anyone else in the world instantaneously and nearly for free, all of a sudden, we can't live in a multi-currency world where we're all trying to do currency exchanging between dollars and pesos and euros and yens and wands, et cetera. 
And so what you need is you need a native currency of the internet. And I think ultimately that is what Bitcoin is um, kind of aspiring to be and likely will end up uh, capturing is for those that are digitally native or are using the internet for commerce, uh, you're going to see Bitcoin more and more become that uh, value that they want to denominate things in. And it's because you're going to see that it's the most interoperable across these physical geographies. Um, and, and so, you know, so far so good, but we got a lot of work to do. And so you, you believe that, that the, the currency in the word cryptocurrency is still really the future and it's not just an a, another asset class? Yeah. I, well, so if you think of what most people would categorize as the crypto industry, uh, I think we are simply going to replicate what the legacy world is. So what's the legacy world? There's four assets. There's stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. Those four assets basically make up everyone's portfolio and everyone's got different weightings or, or kind of risk profiles or goals. Uh, but basically, those are the four assets folks own. In the digital realm, you're going to get the exact same thing. You're going to get digital stocks, digital bonds, digital currencies, digital commodities. Where they get built, all up for debate. How they get built, up for debate. Which ones win, which ones don't, all up for debate. But I think that most people realize that is the world we're moving to. And so how do we get there? Some of the legacy assets will simply upgrade their technology, right? I, I think of the stock market. The stock market used to be paper-based. Now it's electronic QCIP-based. Eventually, it will be digital asset-based. It's just going to take time to get there. Uh, but then there will also be new types of assets. Um, you know, Earlier today, I actually saw somebody created a derivatives product for the floor price of NFTs. That's something that the concept of a floor price never existed before. Right? Like that's something the crypto community made up, and now there's derivatives on that. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but it's pretty cool. And so I think that ultimately what we're watching is an entire generation of digital natives that are growing up, and they're all saying the same thing. The legacy assets don't provide the risk profile and the return profile that I'm looking for. If you look at a traditional investor's portfolio, equities is probably the only thing. Maybe oil, depending on when you look at it are the two assets that they can hold that drives a real rate of return. Gold is down 8% over the last 12 months. It's down 2.5% over the last decade. On a real basis, it's returning negative, both in a one-year and 10-year cycle. If you look at cash, negative real rate of return. Bonds, negative real rate of return. And so at some point, you ask yourself, like, where can you go? And we know that the stock market will continue to serve more and more as this like inflation hedge as more people start to pour into the stock market. We hit all-time highs you know, almost seemingly daily at this point. But also what you're seeing is a bunch of young people who say, hey, I'm going to go into the digital realm and I'm going to build a portfolio here. And so you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But it's just got different names. It looks shiny. Uh, it's hard to wrap your head around at first. But stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities all over again. So how good of a job does legacy media do in its coverage of crypto? What do they get right and what do they get wrong? My guess is um, there's a spectrum, as always. Uh, yeah. There's some people who are super well-educated. There's some who uh, want to be educated but aren't. And then there's some people who are just um, intentionally writing things that they know are uh, bombastic or, or kind of trolling to some degree. Uh, let's focus on the first two groups because at least they, I think they have kind of good intentions. They're trying to, to do their best. The two things that I see um, that are probably the biggest misconceptions, maybe, one is around the energy conversation. So uh, if you think of the legacy banking organizations, uh, they all have linear relationships to energy consumption. If I'm a bank and I want to serve more customers or be able to process more transactions, I have to consume more energy to do it. I either need more data centers, I need more ATMs, I need more physical bank branches, et cetera. I, as I add more users and transactions, I consume more energy. 
Bitcoin doesn't have that linear relationship. And this is kind of a nuanced understanding of the industry, but it's important for the energy debate. The Bitcoin blockchain, whether it is full of transactions or not in each block, is going to be processed with the same amount of energy. And so therefore, you can actually have one transaction worth $1 in a Bitcoin block, or you could have billions of dollars worth of transactions in that block, it still consumes the same energy. And so there's a very unique nonlinear relationship between this uh, system and the energy consumption, which ends up over a long period of time. It, I personally believe it will be a much better system, be better for the environment, it'll fulfill all these ESG goals that everyone's talking about. And also it'll end up being just a, a much more efficient system. The second thing I see folks uh, end up being, um, you know, again, maybe misinformed about is Bitcoiners, I believe, actually understand how the financial system works better than most of the mainstream audience. And the reason is, frankly, most of the mainstream audience uh, is buying into the talking points of the legacy system. And so a simple one was if you go back and you look at the coverage of, let's say, the um, uh, kind of monetary policy decisions that happened since you know March of uh, 2020. At one point, we were being told, you know, inflation is not coming. Don't worry about it. Then it was like, hey, maybe it'll come, but we'll deal with it later. Then it was, hey, it's going to be transitory. Now we, you know, in the last couple of months, we literally saw in May, we're not worried about long-term inflation. In July, we believe that there's not going to be that big of a problem. Just now in August, we just saw the Biden administration more than double their expectation for inflation in Q4 of this year. And they also increased their 2022 inflation expectation. Now, this is one single data point that, frankly, isn't representative of the entire kind of complex economic machine. But what I think ends up being really important is if you go back and you look at why folks were saying this in the Bitcoin community versus not, it derives from their understanding of the structure of the system. Right. And when you think of the structure of the system, what you have to understand is both the historical uh, examples, uh, both good and bad. And you also have to understand how the real economy works versus not. And so one of the things that I think the Bitcoin world has um, that is a significant advantage over whether it's the mainstream media or the legacy financial players is that the Bitcoin community is made up of a global audience of volunteers. These are everyday people from all around the world, both in uh, North America and internationally. They coordinate and communicate in a digital environment every day, nonstop. And so there's this massive acceleration of sharing of information. And so literally right now, if I tweeted and I said, hey, what's a, you know, a bottle of water cost at your local store? I could get thousands of responses from all around the world. I actually have access to a better data set than the legacy system has. And while I'm not going to go and actually rely on that for any sort of true economic analysis, there's anecdotal evidence there, you can see that happening over and over and over again when these types of things pop up. So for example, uh, Nigeria or in Pakistan, there was actually bans placed on Bitcoin. But at the time, the mainstream media was reporting saying, hey, this is really bad. They're banning the, the technology. On the ground, within hours, we knew that it was actually a positive for Bitcoin and that adoption was going to explode. We could see the Google Trend data. We could actually see videos, photos, conversations with people on the ground. And so then you accelerate that out over kind of the next 12 uh, to 24 months. And in both of those countries, after the ban, adoption exploded. And so I think that's really the advantage is just you have more real-time, accurate, on-the-ground data uh, and information uh, where the mainstream media... You know, there's some folks who are doing a fantastic job trying to get to it. 
it's just harder for them to do it, right? How do they go and get that information? Um, because there's a, a level of distrust and they've got editors and, and all that. So I think they're doing a great job trying. It, it's just going to take a while for them to kind of get up to speed. Do, do you think that kind of the average uh, editor at the New York Times, the Washington Post or something like that, um, kind of now understands that crypto, is it's a real thing. It's here to stay. You're not putting the genie back in the bottle. And so it's a question of trying to understand it right, regulate it right, uh, handle it right, as opposed to you know the, the moment of, of debating whether or not this is an actual thing, uh, at least in my mind, is long gone. Do you think that people have accepted that? I think it's split. Um, there's definitely folks who uh, were maybe not even anti an asset. They were just very skeptical who now are maybe cautiously optimistic is the way to think about it. Um, and so they're trying to learn that they're, they're, they're leaning into it. They're, they're trying to wrap their head around it. There's still plenty of people who, frankly, I think are disingenuous in their effort to be negative, right? I mean, there's mainstream reporters who talk about this all day long. And if you go and you look at their coverage, they've never written a positive article. And so it's kind of, you know, how, how are you unbiased if, uh, if you've never written a positive uh, spin on it or, or a positive story? With that said, the one thing that I will say, uh, which I find fascinating, is the thing that everyone is underestimating is the amount of wealth that has been generated in this industry. And what I mean by that is um, the numbers that I saw, and again, take this with a grain of salt because there's not really a way to verify it. But approximately 50% of the Forbes 400 list will be from the Bitcoin and crypto industry when Bitcoin hits $160,000, $170,000 later this year. And so when you start thinking about that, you're talking about one industry that is responsible in a decade or so of the creation of 200 of the 400 wealthiest people in the world. And that trickles down. If you look on the Bitcoin blockchain, there's tens of thousands, we may have crossed 100,000 now, wallets with at least a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Again, that doesn't mean that they're all individuals who didn't have a million dollars before, yada, yada, whatever, but it's just hard to wrap your head around what other company, asset, industry has been able to generate this much wealth, and that's just Bitcoin. We haven't even gotten to all the other assets that'll you know have very similar types of trajectories for the right. people who are involved in it. And so I think ultimately that's probably the biggest misconception is whether you believe in it or not, People are participating. There's a massive flow of intellectual capital and financial capital into the industry. I wouldn't want to be the person who's kind of short the industry, whether I'm covering it, investing in it, or, or just from an intellectual curiosity standpoint. So if, if you were Janet Yellen and running Treasury and you wanted to try to responsibly handle your institution's approach to crypto, uh, what would you do? I, I think that there's uh, a two-step process. The first one and the easiest one is I would digitize the dollar immediately. Uh, I think as far back as maybe 2019, beginning of 2019, uh, I was out on you know national television saying, we need to do this immediately. It's a national emergency. And, and my thought process, frankly, was let's say that you are that citizen in Venezuela, your local currency fails you, uh, and you want to get some other asset, some level of stability. You don't want Bitcoin. You don't want physical gold. You want dollars, right? And the reason why you want dollars is because it comes with the full faith and credit and the promise of the U.S. and the stability uh, that you perceive in it, et cetera. The problem is it's very hard to get dollars. So on the black market, it's dangerous, it's expensive, uh, and it's just difficult in general. You can't put the money in your bank account because you're worried about Caesarship, et cetera. And then lastly is if you try to leave with the dollars, uh, it's very difficult. It can be confiscated in physical form or it can be blocked from a uh, sanction standpoint uh, in electronic QCIP form. And so ultimately what you start to ask yourself is, well, where can I buy an asset using my computer? 
Right now, historically, it's been Bitcoin. Even though it's volatile, even though it has all these kind of negative side effects, it's better than nothing, right? And so, so capital has flowed there. But what we see is a place like China who's coming out with a digital currency, a central bank digital currency. And so if I'm now sitting in Venezuela and I can go on my computer and I can get the Chinese currency in digital form, but I can't get the dollar, I'm more likely to adopt the stable nation state currency of China rather than the dollar. And so it's an accessibility thing. If we want to ensure that the US dollar has global adoption uh, and continue to drive kind of frictionless accessibility, we have to digitize the currency or people are going to go to whoever digitizes first. So that's kind of the the, the easy step um, of those organizations. The second one in the much harder- just, just real fast, what do you, so let's say you did digitize the dollar. What do you think within five years to the ownership percentage of dollar ownership comes from people who took advantage of it digitally. I, I think that um, one, you would see the U.S. dollar actually extend its lead on a global stage against other fiat currencies, right? So, so almost like you're, you're compounding the benefit or the moat that you already have. Uh, two is. Um, there's two different predictions. One is that you would get incredible international adoption and no domestic adoption. The other is that you would get both. Uh, if you got both, I could easily see it um, you know, quickly uh, eclipsing maybe 30, 40, 50%, kind of mid double digits, uh, just driven by if employers are paying people, if they accept it for taxes, uh, um, all that type of stuff. It is better payment rails. That's probably the most important part. It's cheaper to move around. It's faster. It's, there's no hours of operations. You can always access your wealth, et cetera. If you didn't get the domestic adoption, I think it would still probably be you know high single digits or low double digit percentage uh, adoption. But for those people, it would be drastically impactful given their other um, you know th their other options, if you will. So back to Yellen. After digitizing the dollar, what's her next move? The second step is uh, global game theory kicks in. You cannot own Bitcoin for as long as you want. At some point, you're forced to buy it. And the reason why you're forced to buy it is because uh, the cost of not owning it becomes more onerous than the cost of owning it. So for example, uh, quite a while ago, there was a, a, a gentleman named uh, Pierre Rochard, I believe uh, originally talked about this. He called it a speculative attack. The United States has printed trillions of dollars over the last 18 months. If they were to come out and print half a billion dollars and just take it and buy as much Bitcoin in the market as they can, yes, the price of Bitcoin will go up a lot, but also the United States will have more Bitcoin than any other nation state. And therefore, God forbid it becomes the next global reserve currency or super valuable. They have a bunch of it. And so they're well positioned for that future world. Uh, and if it doesn't, you spend half a billion dollars, which frankly is only about 10% of what they printed in the last 18 months. Right, so the, the the kind of uh, risk reward benefit ends up being uh, pretty compelling. As the dollar gets devalued more and more, it becomes even more compelling. The second is that that global game theory really does play in because now all of a sudden, if there's only 21 million, you only need two or three countries to actually start to adopt this until you know two three dots turn into a trend. And so we've already seen El Salvador say, look, we're not going to replace the dollar as our reserve currency uh, of our nation. But we are going to add Bitcoin as another uh, legal tender. And so now we have two legal tenders, and they're going to be paying people $30 in Bitcoin to adopt this Bitcoin wallet, et cetera. I think what you're starting to realize is people are saying to themselves, wait a second, an open system beats a closed system. If I don't have to trust somebody else and I can have something that's programmatic, I'd much prefer that. We see that in every aspect of our life, our music recommendations, our search results, our map uh, requests, et cetera. We want the algorithms. The algorithms are actually good in uh, in the way that consumer behaviors work. But a nation state historically has held control. 
And so I think that you're eventually going to get forced into doing it. And so step one is digitize your dollar. Step two, though, is eventually you do have to start to participate in this economy in one way or another. Maybe you don't want to buy it. Maybe you want to mine it. Maybe you want to earn it, whatever. But as soon you have to uh, to jump in. And in terms of how you actually regulate it, you know, which which agency is, is doing it, what the tax treatment should be, uh, how you're granting bank charters, you know, whether there should be ETFs, everything else. Um, do you have a kind of a, a view as to how that should all happen? Yeah. So I'm always careful here just to say, uh, I'm not an expert on this stuff. There's people way smarter than me on this. Um, but the, my understanding of it at, at the moment is two things from a framework standpoint, the U S dollar is not regulated. It's an inanimate object. You can't find it. You can't put it in jail, right? So what do you do? You actually regulate the individuals or the organizations that transact in it, hold it, are related to it, support it, et cetera. Same thing in Bitcoin. Bitcoin itself cannot be regulated. It's an inanimate objects, computer network, but the people who transact in it or support it or hold it can be regulated. For the most part, I would argue that the Bitcoin users are over-regulated compared to the legacy users. I'll give you two examples. Right now, if I go and I buy dinner uh, with US dollars, I pay sales tax and I pay the price of the meal. I walk out, I'm done. If I buy it in Bitcoin, I pay sales tax, the price of the meal. I also pay capital gains when I spend that Bitcoin. So I actually have a worse tax regime if I use Bitcoin than if I use dollars. There's over-regulation on one currency than the other. The second is in the state of New York, uh, let's say in New York City, the capital, the financial capital of the world. If I want to start a traditional financial firm, I may have to get a broker-dealer license. I may have to uh, work with FINRA, get a registered investment advisor. Maybe I have to do KYC AML. Whatever the, the hurdles that I need to go through from a regulatory standpoint, I have to do. If I start a crypto company, I have to do the exact same thing, all of those steps, plus I have to get a bit license. And if I go and I get the bit license, it's only so many of them have been handed out. So it's harder in the financial capital of the world to start a crypto business than it is a traditional business. What I ultimately think will happen is we'll get an even playing field, uh, which will only further accelerate the, the adoption of the industry. Uh, and then in terms of who's going to regulate this stuff, I think you've got to look at which asset are we talking about. Right, because some of them are securities, some of them are currencies, some of them are commodities, etc. And I, again, I, I think the more things change, the more they stay the same. If your regulatory organization is responsible for securities, you're going to be responsible for digital securities. If your regulatory organization is responsible for commodities, digital commodities, etc. Yeah. The big debate is going to come down: what's a security, what's not, what's a commodity, what's not. And you know, I, I don't envy the people who are going to have to make those decisions because it's nearly impossible to get every single asset correct. And do do you see? This team, kind of Biden, Powell, Yellen, so on, choosing to take this on and do all of the work um, to properly regulate crypto, or do you think they just kicked the can? I'm not so much uh, uh, like a political expert enough to really understand, um, you know, kind of what their appetite for that is, what their, uh, frankly, the pros and cons of like their abilities to do this. I, I think it's less about which administration is in office, and I think there's a tipping point when it comes to the size of the industry. I actually don't know what that size is. If let's call it today, we're around $2 trillion uh, total market cap of all crypto assets, 3 trillion, 5 trillion, 10 trillion. I, I don't know where the number is, but at some point it's like too big where you can't just keep kicking the can down the road. And the I think the bigger question is just which administration's in office when that happens? Like, yeah. you know, if it's 5 trillion, that could happen this year. If it's ten trillion, maybe we have to wait two more presidents. I I just don't know kind of what the the time frame will be, but to me, it's more about the the size of the market more so than one administration over another wants to come in and deal with this stuff. Because as we've seen, you know, 
you're talking about literally 100 plus million people around the world that are super active on social media. They have incredible ability uh, to create change, to mobilize, to, to do all this stuff. It's not really a kind of like a hornet's nest you want to kick if you're a politician. And so I think that there's this um, that this uh, participation only out of necessity that's going to happen once the industry gets to a certain size. Yeah, so there's got to be some sort of forcing function because unless someone like Yellen said, hey, I, I, I want this to be part of my legacy and therefore I'm going to take on all this work, uh, there's no real political imperative to, to do this right now. And it's really hard in my experience in government to get anything done if there's no political incentive to do it. Um, so, okay, so that, that takes us to the re regulatory side. We're at 5 trillion, we're at 160,000 for Bitcoin, whatever whatever projection you think happens in the relatively near future. Um, and you're Jamie Dimon or any big bank. Uh, how does your posture change from the way it's been before around crypto? So there's essentially three ways that I would say uh, you can participate in the market. You can uh, buy Bitcoin uh, or another crypto asset, but let's say buy Bitcoin. You can mine it so you can participate in the network and, and earn it in exchange for computational power. Uh, or three is you can earn Bitcoin in some way. And so each financial institution, I think, is going to take a different step. I actually think that uh, earning it is going to be the way that they enter the market. Um, the more uh, kind of sophisticated, buttoned up, like traditional Wall Street firm. Um, so you see them creating funds where they can charge investors fees. You see them investing in uh, exchanges that get transaction fees. You see them trying to start businesses, uh, et cetera. And, and so I think that's really the, the way that they'll try to enter it. It's kind of the least controversial way. It's not really trying to take a position on the asset itself. It's saying, hey, our clients want this. So, hey, we're going to provide a product for them and we'll make some money on them. What I think is going to prove to be the, uh, the best decision in hindsight is to actually go the opposite direction. So is to buy the Bitcoin first, learn to mine it, and then build products around it. And when you look at Bitcoin specifically, it's the best performing asset over the last decade. Literally, there's not one other asset that you could have invested in that has outperformed Bitcoin. And so buying Bitcoin was a superior strategy to every investment decision that every Wall Street bank made over the last decade. Now, past performance isn't an indicator of future performance, but when you start to understand that, let's say that that return gets cut in half or gets cut, frankly, by 90%, right? You're still talking about an asset that is compound annual growth at 200% for a decade. If you cut it down by 50%, it's 100. If you cut it down by 90%, you're talking about 20% compound annual growth for a decade. It's incredible to see how far this asset can still go. And so I think that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing a bifurcation. There's people who understand um, kind of the network and, and the potential that it has. And there's people who are kind of playing around the periphery. And what they're trying to figure out is how do we essentially benefit from this without really taking a stance or kind of jumping head first? And it's because they don't want to cannibalize their legacy business. How much trust would be lost by legacy partners if name your favorite you know, large Wall Street bank, they came out and said, we're going to be the leader in Bitcoin. There's actually a lot of people who would say, well, hold on a second. You're, you guys are risky, right? Like I actually, maybe I don't want to be your partner. Maybe I don't want to store my assets with you. Um, it's just hard to tell until somebody starts doing this. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think to your overall point though, whether it's media regulators, anyone else, it, it's all a question of time. It's just what's, what's the tipping point that, that makes it all happen. When you're personally looking at currencies other than Bitcoin, 
what criteria do you use to evaluate them and kind of what you're going to invest in and what you're not? Yeah, for me, uh, I have an advantage. I'm 33. So I've got, you know, a very long runway, hopefully. Um, and if I've got time on my side, uh, durability is probably one of the most important things is uh, I want to ensure that the currency is still going to be around 50 years from now, right? If I always joke that uh, my Bitcoin plan is to hand my Bitcoin to my grandchildren. Okay, well, is it durable enough to do that compared to other currencies, right? I, I actually think that Bitcoin has a much higher percentage chance of surviving uh, over a long period of time compared to other fiat currencies. Not all of them, but but there's many that I don't think will last 50 years. Um, and then the second thing that I would look at is the structure of them. And what you find is um, in the legacy world, everyone compares individual fiat currencies to each other. So the US dollar versus the euro, the euro versus the yen, et cetera. But from a market structure standpoint or, or kind of a monetary structure, they're all the same. They have variable monetary policies and they're all inflationary in nature. And so when you think about that, Bitcoin is 180 degree difference, right? It's disinflationary and it has a programmatic monetary policy. And so the reason why I think a lot of technology investors are drawn to this is because they understand you're doing something different. And where you get outsized returns is you do something different and you're right. I think everyone agrees Bitcoin is doing something different than, let's say, the legacy uh, currencies. It's just, is it right or not? And that's where the debate comes in. So far, so good. Sure, something can happen in the future. I just think that, uh, you know, each passing day, you get kind of the Lindy effect, and it's more likely that it will be around than not uh, as we get further and further down the road. And so these legacy currencies, um, contrary to, I think, the legacy investor, I just put them all together in the same bucket. I just say, look, they're all inflationary, variable monetary policy currencies. Um, and so, sure, some of them will do better or worse than others. But for the most part, that basket's going to rise or fall together. All right. So last question. You mentioned that once Bitcoin hits 160, 170, uh, you know, half of the Fortune 500 or Fourth 400 or whatever uh, will, will come from from the crypto community. What are those crypto billionaires like? I mean, our whole conception of kind of the hedge fund billionaires and all the, the, the Zuckerberg tech billionaires of the world. I mean, it's so ingrained in popular culture. Um, will they just end up kind of being similar to what we already expected billionaires? Or do you think they'll usher in a whole new culture? You definitely get a skew younger. You definitely get a, a more international audience. Um, it's not fully concentrated in, in North America. And then I think also uh, you get folks who didn't have to play status games to acquire the fortune. Yeah. And so they end up being less interested in the status games. Doesn't mean everybody, there's outliers, you know, all, all the caveats. But yep. um, I, I definitely think that there is less of a status game that gets played. And so the, you know, the joke is uh, if you went to a Bitcoin conference or a crypto conference and you meet somebody, they could be broke or they could be a billionaire and you may not know the difference, right? <laughs> and and uh, there's healthy parts to that and there's also not healthy parts to that, but but I think that is uh, you know a unique quality of, uh, of the industry. All right, yeah, and look, may maybe it will be a community that uh, if they're less concerned about things like status, we'll say, how do we use this money once we have you know more than enough of it to put the things we believe in kind of first and impact change and that that would be great that would be very welcome so uh anthony pompliano aka pomp thank you so much for coming on firewall absolutely thank you guys so much for having me